Welcome to Deus Books. Join us on a journey into the heart of Catholicism through the most interesting reading, stories, and doctrines that the Church has to offer. Inspired by no earthly ambition, the Church seeks but a solitary goal, to carry forward the work of Christ under the lead of the befriending Spirit, and Christ entered this world to give witness to the truth to rescue and not to sit in judgment, to serve and not to be served. Gaudium et spes. Here we go. Very nice, uh, very humbling remarks from the church, wouldn't you say? I would totally agree with that. <laughs> I think that's, uh, especially in the modern time, which is exactly what this document is, is addressing, the church in the modern world, it's important to remember that the church does as Christ commanded her to do. So since Christ, and this is from John three sixteen to 19, I believe, where he says, you know, I didn't come to condemn the world, uh, but to save it. That's paraphrasing. The church also did not, it, it was not founded to condemn the world, but to help save it, to lead it to Christ. And so I think it's, it's uh, fitting that the church would put this near the top of this this document. This is paragraph three, which we're going to start. It's a lot of people claim that the church is judgy, that the church is, you know, too limiting, too restricting. But that's actually the opposite of what the church is. The church is it only proposes truth. It doesn't impose it. On anyone, because that would violate the that would violate free will. Um, we should probably give some background to what Vatican II is and Gaudium et Spes. Probably should do that. Uh, You're very smart. It's Vatican II was a ecumenical council called in 1960 to 65ish that time period where all the bishops got together in the world and. Uh, updating their teachings is the wrong word. Yeah, they didn't because at this council they didn't change any doctrine, and at least not in this document they changed their pastoral approach. So they're trying to recommunicate what's already established as truth, and so this document, Gaudium et Spes, Church in the Modern World is written to sort of address a bunch of new things that have come to the world. Because the previous Vatican I Council, I believe, is pre or just after the Civil War. Yeah, it was the late 1800s. And so think about how much has changed in the world from 1965 to, say, 1880, or whenever the first one. I don't remember the dates of the first one. It was. I'm gonna look this up. Uh, let's see here. But uh, yeah, it was uh, 29 June 1868. Yeah. So just so what is that? Just after the Civil War. Yeah. And so think about all the different ways the world has changed since Civil War to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I mean, air travel, for example, radio. I mean, all the, World War One and Two had happened. And and all all like of this, Korea. yeah. And the we're in the middle of the Cold War, and all of this stuff is happening without the church getting together and addressing. 
Right. So uh, they that's what this is about, is sort of like commenting on all these new things that are happening in the world and how does a Christian or how does a Catholic approach these different things and what does it mean for the church going forward? And to bring in some international historical context, so in America it was, you know, Civil War and the Reconstruction era and 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 then but in Europe, if you think about it, turn of the century, all those different Government changes that happened, for example, in Germany alone, uh, there's like three (laughs) (laughs) from Civil War to 1965, three or four. Uh, Italy was going through a tumultuous time, uh, which is part of what Vatican I addressed. That's where we get the papal infallibility was was, uh, declared, that one. So a lot of political, you had the, the communist revolution happening. Like you said, the Cold War was now happening. So a lot has happened in in the world that did require this council to see, like, okay, clearly Christendom is not the the center of political power any longer, which it had been for pretty much a thousand years at that point. Yeah. So so, so we need to address how we apply church to the modern geopolitical realm. Right. And that's... In this document, it's not so much church. It's not so much theology as mm-hmm. it is almost like, well, how does the church fit into Paul? It's it's almost a political document. Yeah, you know, very much so. Um, and more specifically about the church's role in society. Um, so it's kind of a fascinating thing if you think about if you think about when this is being written and the the amount of time that has passed since something like this had happened before. So pretty interesting. But um, so number three, I'm going to the paragraph number three in Gaudium et Spes uh, basically says what the goal of this document is. It's in it's in or what the role of the church is. You summed it up nicely when you said the the to save and not to judge and to serve and not mm-hmm. to be served. Paragraph three is titled an offer an offer of service to humankind. And so the church says here. It is the human person that is to be saved. Human society, which must be renewed. It is the human person, therefore, which is the key to this discussion. Each individual human person in his, in her or his totality, body and soul, heart and conscious, mind and will. So even though they're going to talk about politics, they're approaching it from a focus on the individual person. Yeah. Which I think is important. Very important. So, yeah. I think uh, in in uh, paragraph four, and the title of this section is Introductory Statement, The Situation of Men in the Modern World. So this is the church now highlighting, you know, what is, where is humanity right now? And how is the church interpreting where humanity is in the world right now? And it talks... Uh, The church here mentions, gradually and more precisely, he lays bare the laws of society only to be paralyzed by uncertainty about the direction to give it. So I'm going to restate that whole paragraph and then talk about why I highlighted that sentence. 
As happens in any crisis of growth, this transformation has brought serious difficulties in its wake. Thus, while man extends his power in every direction, he does not always succeed in subjecting it to his own welfare, striving to probe more profoundly into deeper recesses of his own mind. He frequently appears more unsure of himself. And so this is why I highlighted gradually and more precisely, he lays bare the laws of society only to be paralyzed by uncertainty about the direction to give it. So basically what the church is saying here is that by man exercising more power, by going deeper in his own mind, he's falling into himself. And so because of that, he gets paralyzed by the uncertainty or paralyzed by uncertainty about the direction to give this power because he's looking at himself and the church would say, instead of God. Man, man's having an existential crisis. Exactly. Basically, you know? And it, and it says, in no other age has humanity enjoyed such abundance of wealth, resources, and economic well-being, and yet a huge proportion of the people of the world is plagued by hunger and extreme need, while countless numbers are totally illiterate. Mm-hmm. So what the church is doing in this paragraph is sort of surveying, uh, they're taking a glimpse at, the world and they're highlighting there's been all this progress and a really sort of unimaginable amount of progress is happening is unfolding at this time and at the same time millions of people are still being left behind man the individual person is not necessarily even the ones that are part of that abundance of wealth and progress they're not as you said it's not like they're totally fulfilled yet. There's right. still a longing that's missing. Yeah. And and the it says there toward the end of paragraph four, finally, man painstakingly searches for a better world without a corresponding spiritual advancement. So yeah. what the church is noticing here is that there are so many secular advances so many you know so much secular uh, secular success and advancement and it's not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing it's just pointing out reality when it says without a corresponding spiritual advancement so while man is progressing in economics in science in in society Man doesn't have a a corresponding spiritual advancement as part of that, which is what is helping lead man astray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they. Uh, so this is almost like in all of these paragraphs we've read so far, almost like a, a preface to mm-hmm. what they're actually commenting on. They're they're basically justifying why they feel the need to comment on all yeah. the things they're about to comment on. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of what the first five, six, you know, paragraphs are about. Mm-hmm. Um, in chapter seven, and I and they they address it more specifically later on, but they they kind of tease something here that's interesting. They say in chapter seven or paragraph seven. Paragraph seven. I'm sorry. <clears throat> they say, um, as regards religion, there's a completely new atmosphere that conditions its practice. On the one hand. People are taking a hard look at all magical worldviews and prevailing superstitions and are demanding a more personal and active commitment of faith, so that not a few have achieved a lively sense of the divine. 
On the other hand, greater numbers are falling away from the practice of religion. In the past, it was the exception to repudiate God and religion to the point of abandoning them, and then only in individual cases. But nowadays, it seems a matter of course to reject them as incompatible with scientific progress and a new kind of humanism. <sighs> so they're talking here about how, for the first time in history, large portions of society of the population around the world are sort of rejecting religion and they're not even just talking about the church they're talking about sort of all major religions um and so that's an interesting thing if you think about it how new like atheism really is uh presenting itself in the in the 20th century because we still have communist regimes around the world at this time that are actively anti-God or whatever. So that I think this is the first time that they're seeing something like that. And in that earlier in that paragraph, the part that I highlighted, and obviously I took this, this jumped out at me because I'm a youth minister, but it's in at the beginning of the paragraph. It says a change in attitudes and in human structures frequently calls accepted values into question especially among young people who have grown impatient on more than one occasion and indeed become rebels in their distress. Aware of their own influence in the life of society, they want to be part in it. To, they want a part in it sooner. I, I, I find it interesting that the church, I find it good that the church recognizes this because I think in the last, I would say, John St. John Paul II's reign as Pope, that was one of his main focuses was on young people because he recognized what the church recognized uh, in this council is that young people want to be a part of it, a part of society, a part of decision-making sooner. I mean, in the United States, look at the 60s and all yeah. the protests against Vietnam and the sexual revolution. That was all driven by young people. Right. And so I think it was important for the church to recognize this because this would also occur in the church as well. And I think there's an opportunity there. Uh, I say this because as of this recording, I just got back from the National Catholic Youth Conference. So you want young people, if they're going to have more influence earlier in life, you want them to be a part of uh, how the church functions, especially in the modern world. I, I really like that they pointed this out. It's a bit of foreshadowing for JP2, in my opinion. Yeah, they're talking about all those all those dang hippies protesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just have this really superficial picture of like the Forrest Gump scenes with Jenny and all the... <laughs> <laughs> It's exactly. But yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's sort of uh, sort of a new thing happening, especially in the West, in the Western cultures at this time. Is like college age people are really sort of speaking out, mm-hmm. um, speaking out in society and having a more prominent role. Now, I want to go to uh, chapter one, the dignity of the human person. This is, uh, in my opinion, uh, one of the most important church teachings to me it's the most important social teaching that we have yeah it, if you have an understanding of the dignity of the human person that is at the root of much of the church's doctrinal statements things like 
their opinions on warfare, on abortion, on uh, imprisonment, and on political justice. All of it is rooted in the value of the human person. And so this is an important section. So here's kind of where this kicks off. For sacred scripture teaches that women and men were created in the image of God, able to know and love their creator and set by him over all earthly creatures that they might rule them and make them make use of them while glorifying God. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. God did not create men and women as solitary beings. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, male and female, God created them. This partnership of man and woman constitutes the first form of a communion between people. For by their innermost nature, men and women are social beings. And if they do not enter into relationships with others, they can neither live nor develop their gifts. I highlighted that also. Yeah. It's, I mean, a lot of... A lot of a lot of stuff is said there. Like, there's a lot to unpack there. It's a dense, it's a very dense statement. When I read that, I, I look at the the atmosphere today in in the, the, the how we have relationship today. And, you know, I'm going to sound like an old grumpy man. Oh, the internet ruined everything. But it's it's important, I think, to note that with with the blow up of social media, with with especially young people forming relationships primarily through the internet and less and less so uh, uh, between persons, I think is important to note because, you know, like it says here, unless he relates himself to others, he can neither live nor develop his potential. So, like, if we live in this isolated Twitter war world, we aren't realizing our full potential and we can begin to implode. And then in my opinion, this is expanding on what the church said back in the sixties. In my opinion, it's starting to happen. We, we are so individualized now. Everything is so customized to the individual that we are beginning to see this implosion of community, this implosion of, of consensus it's more of like mob rule now as opposed to let's all get together and figure this out. That's that's my take on it. Well, what are your thoughts? And, uh, you know, the thing that jumps out to me is it's harder on the Internet. It's harder to see the other person for what they are mm -hmm. as a person. It's easier to demean right. someone. It's easier to attack someone because you're not seeing their full person in relation with you. Um I would like to point out, though, that even on the Internet, even on the Internet, it, it proves that by our innermost nature, we are social beings. Because think of all the different subcultures and groups that form right. on the Internet. Yeah, you're spot and so on. Even in the most even in a solitary sort of activity, you're you're still finding community in a way for better or for worse. Not saying it's a good thing. I'm just observing the fact that even on the internet you you can't get away from this because it's it's part of our human nature right. is to be social yeah think about if you came across a crazy guy in the woods that has been living in a shack all by himself for 50 years right probably be a crazy person right <laughs> probably <laughs> don't tell the hermits that yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know i've read some of their diaries and it, it's a little weird sometimes yeah but. it does get a little strange <laughs> definitely gets a little strange 
Um, but yeah, really important statement there on on the human person, and that the image of God, the imago dei. That's a hmm. that's a really common church term. It that is. is why human beings are created equal. That is why we are supposed to love and respect each other because we are all fundamentally equal because we are created by God. Right. The same. That's good. So, yeah. Um, the next one, it, it talks about uh, humanity's essential nature. I'm on, I'm on 14. Hmm. The human person, though, made up of body and soul is a unity in itself it's in its very bodily condition it synthesizes the elements of the material world which through it are thus brought to the highest perfection and are enabled to raise their voice in spontaneous praise of the creator for this reason human beings may not despise their bodily life they are rather to regard their bodies as good and hold them in honor since god has created them and will raise them up on the last day i like this one because when i talk to people when I'm out and about in the church world, talking to people, most people don't. Most people miss this: that from the church's perspective, our body and soul are a unity. It's not that when we die, our soul escapes our body and floats up to heaven. You know what I mean? That is what's called Platonism. That was Plato's idea, and the church throughout its history has always denied that. That we are body and soul together. We believe in the resurrection of the body. It doesn't mean that my skeleton's literally going to pop out of the ground one day and float up to heaven, but it does mean that what we like, what what God envisioned for us, our perfection, is both a spiritual and a physical together, not separate. Right. That's good. Um, next thing I wanted to point out. I mean, you could take some time here because I'd like your thoughts on this. There's a lot of implications here, but not of actual statements. Chapter 16, the dignity of the moral conscience. Paragraph 16? Yeah. So it says, deep within their consciences, men and women discover a law which they have not laid upon themselves and which they must obey. Its voice ever calling them to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil tells them inwardly at the right moment, do this, shun that, for they have in their hearts a law inscribed by God. So they're talking about our conscience right there. Yes. Every human has it. And the church views your conscience, that inner ability to decipher good from bad, and choose one way or the other, is uh, given to us by God. It's a law that God has inscribed in us, as they put it. It's kind of interesting. They, there they are alone with God, whose voice echoes in their depths. By conscience, in a wonderful way, that law is made known, which is fulfilled in the love of God and of one's neighbor. So... They're saying everybody has conscience. Right. This passage here. Let me let me read one more sentence before I expand on that. This cannot be said of the person who takes little trouble to find out what is true and good or when conscience is gradually almost blinded through the habit of committing sin. 
So mm. what they're talking about there is basically the entire concept of the screw tape letters. There's people who, you know, might not have the same moral culpability. They might not be able to understand right from wrong. You know, be it they have something physically wrong with them or mentally wrong with them. Right. But the church seems to think that most people either don't care or have gradually chosen the wrong path and sort of fallen away from God to the point where they can commit really atrocious sins and it seems as innocent as stealing a stick of gum or something. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's why the church starts paragraph 17. This is what I highlighted. Only in freedom can man direct himself toward goodness. Our contemporaries make much of this freedom and pursue it eagerly and rightly to be sure. Often, however, they foster it perversely as a license for doing whatever pleases them, even if it is evil. Mm. I think only in freedom can man direct himself toward goodness. If, if, if you, the, the, the conscience is very sensitive because if we are trapped in habitual sin or addiction, that's going to morph our conscience. We're not free. We're trapped in this habitual sin. And so that's why we feel like freedom is for me to do whatever I want. Because that the habitual sin blinds us of goodness, of true goodness and truth. Because now freedom becomes whatever is going to help me perpetuate what feels good. It becomes emotional. Right. So take take those statements on conscience. People have used this. I myself has, have used this as sort of a groundwork for answering the question of what happens to the people who have never heard of God or mm. Jesus. And my my belief there is starting first and for first and foremost that God is a just a just creator, correct? A benevolent and just creator. Yes. So he so it's not like if you didn't follow this formula or say the right words that you're just automatically out. But I want to take with that to me, even if you've never heard of. God or Jesus or the Bible. To me, this is implying that you will still be judged by God, not because you haven't heard of his name, but because you've, whether you've recognized it or not, you have either been following God's will or not following God's will. And you knew it was the right or the wrong thing because you had a conscience. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, God gave you that conscience. Correct. I think, and I, I would agree with you. And I think that's exactly what the church teaches, because it would make God supremely unjust if people never heard about him. <laughs> and like, well, you didn't a missionary didn't come to spread the good news, so <laughs> have fun in hell. Like that would make God absolutely terrible. And I would not want to believe in a God such as that. So I think it absolutely makes sense to say that the conscience is something written on a person's being by God himself. And, you know, the, the natural law is something written on our hearts because we are made in God's image. 
that would it only makes sense to have the natural law written in our beings mm-hmm. because that promotes the fact that we are made in God's image, the ability to do right and wrong, the ability to know that, our intellect, our intellectual ability, which this document speaks about human ability a lot in this document, especially early on. And that that is that comes from God and shouldn't be suppressed because this document doesn't say that either. It it basically what this document is, is getting at in the beginning is it needs to be ordered properly. Right. And and it seems obvious, you know, that question, but it might be it might be the most common question I get from people. Really? Young and old. About yeah. well, what about the people that don't know, you know? And so I think this is an important important little teaching that they throw in there. It is important. Yeah. Not not that they just threw it in there recklessly. Yeah, they're like, Yeah, let's just add in there and it makes us feel good. But it's yeah, so um, oh, I did want to, you made me want to bring something up so that I, a, a critique against this, uh, a pushback, if you will. Well, everybody's conscience is different. Correct. And I would argue to a degree, but I almost think of this as like a proof for God. If you think about how remarkably similar our morality is, acro- not only across cultures, but across human history. Correct. Uh, C.S. Lewis pointed this out one time, and he said, "And he said, there's never been a culture that's ever existed that, you know, honors people that flee from battle. Right. Like, think about that. Like, yeah, we have de- some, even take the most extreme differences. A culture that would practice human sacrifice, for example. They're very different from, like, our culture today. But also not they also that what's binding those two together is well we still value things like honor integrity even human life because mm-hmm. you wouldn't be sacrificing human life if you didn't value it right um, and so it's kind of like a humbling thing if you think about how little our morality on the, on from a grand view like the big things yeah even things I, even small things like theft right the, that has also crossed cultures in time and history. Yeah. Adultery, uh, you know, things like that uh, have all been part of the mores of, of various societies. Societies that have never communicated with Correct. each other either. So Correct. completely different. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. All right. You got anything you want to look at in uh, 17? Not in 17. My next highlighted point, well, let's see. Yeah, that's all I got for 17. My next highlighted point is about atheism in 20. Okay. Um, one, one thing I did want to point out uh, in 18. Said, for God has called men and women and still calls them to attach themselves with all their being to him in sharing forever a life that is divine and free from all decay. Christ won this victory when he rose to life, for by his death he freed women and men from death. Faith, therefore, with its solidly based teaching, provides thoughtful people with an answer to their anxious queries about the future lot. 
I like that idea. I like that they emphasize that Christ won this victory when he rose to life. People, even Christians, uh, tend to think of the world as like a yin and yang, a, yeah. a fight between good and evil. When in reality, if you if you take the story of Jesus at its heart, it's not a struggle between two powers, good and evil. The struggle's already done. It's already won. And it's sort of like a last dying sort of like festering that sin and death is in the world today. And evil itself is just a lack of something good. It's not its own entity. So I think it's I think it's a it's a hopeful thing to recognize in the world that even as there is evil that goes on, it's a battle that's already been won in a way. Correct. And it's just a matter of joining oneself to that victory. That's that's what what's at stake at this point. Yeah, and so you have some stuff highlighted about atheism. I have a lot of stuff about that too. They uh in 19 they're talking about they're kind of surveying atheism and its difference and sort of the different forms of it. So they touch on standard atheism, belief in no God. They touch mm-hmm. on agnosticism. Right. But again, why they're doing this is because this is the first time in human history that atheism is not just some insignificant minority of people. Correct. This and it, it's, it actually says that. Like, uh, Oh, really? It, not like exactly to what you said, but it's, it's, it's no longer rare. Right. Where it used to be a rare phenomenon, it has now become normal. Um, for 19, I want to point out this. Because they're talking about atheism and they're they kind of they're talking about the the problems that atheisms do. They have a bad understanding of God. Mm-hmm. They, what they deny about God is not actually what we say about God. Right. All, all sorts of stuff like that. Sort Very of like true. these misconceptions that. But then they do kind of take some ownership here, and they say they're not infrequently. Atheism is born from a violent protest against the evil in this world or from the fact that certain human ideals are wrongfully invested in such an absolute character as to be taken for God. Modern civilization itself, though, of its very nature, but because it's too engrossed in the concerns of this world can often make it harder to approach God. So they're they're saying, look, atheism is sort of part of the growth of atheism right now is at a response to all the evils in the world. Right. And they're looking at it and they're going, how could, how could uh, God exist if all this terrible things is ha- are happening? And that's still an argument used to this day. Right. That's still one of the main arguments. If there's a God, why is all this? I mean, that's one of the main questions that an atheist would propose other than, well, you can't prove God scientifically. Like the next thing would be, well, if this all if God is all this good, then why is there all this evil? That's still a top question. And they take a little more ownership here too, and they say, um, in some cases, the atheism is a response to the Christian religion in particular. Believers can thus have more than a little to do with the rise of atheism to the extent that they are careless about their instruction in the faith mm. or present its teachings falsely, or even fail their religious, moral, or social life, they must be said to conceal rather than to reveal the true nature of God and of religion. Boom. 
That's big. Yeah. That's big for the church to admit. Yeah, I feel like yeah, I feel like that's them kind of acknowledging cuz normally in church history it's like if you're not a Christian you're a heathen and thus condemned to hell. That's right. that's that the church would lead with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's just the truth. Yeah. That's uh, here the church is taking a much more personal relational approach if you will. And especially after talking about human dignity and, and et cetera, et cetera, saying, yeah, what people do, how people express their faith matters because if it's done poorly uh, in an incomplete way or incorrectly, it can lead people astray. Right. That's a big thing to admit. Yeah, it's it's putting the it's putting the blame on christian person right if i if i consider myself a believer and i go to mass and i want to do what's right there's a responsibility there that i know my faith Mm -hmm. because if somebody asks me about my faith and i give a bad answer that's a problem i mean how much of our time as youth ministers was sort of undoing the bad instruction that people have either gotten from their grandparents or someone right. next to them in the pew or their parents. Right. You know, so or, or society or yeah, or friends or society yep. or what they see on TV. Like, so all of that matters. So to me, this is like an implication on the individual believer. And I think to expand on your point about knowledge, I think it go, I think even further action. It's one thing to know your faith. It's a whole nother thing to live it. And yeah. so if you're living it, poorly if you're not being that disciple that we're called to be it's scandalous right and it leads people astray i mean look at uh for example in more recent times you know well i guess not recent times because the stuff was happening back then but in 02 when the when the priest scandal dropped uh, uh, people left in droves because the priests were not living a virtuous life yeah, that's scandalous, and we, all of us, have to answer for our actions in relation to others. That's why the church, I think, focused a lot on the dignity of the human person and the the interrelationship of people. I think it's it's actually now that I think of it, a genius that the church started there, and not like here are the problems of the world and here's how we should be. It starts with. The it starts with relationships matter, how we live out the faith matters, and it it doesn't come out as like yeah if you're an atheism you're going to hell like it says no there's probably a lot of atheists because we are bad Christians exactly yeah and it's and it's our fault right in a lot of ways that's beautiful yeah I said in uh, paragraph twenty I said I didn't write this document <laughs> I highlighted in paragraph twenty. Modern atheism often takes on a systemic expression, which in addition to other causes, stretches the desires of for human independence to such a point that it poses difficulties against any kind of dependence on God. Those who profess atheism of this sort maintain that it gives man freedom to be an end unto himself, the sole artisan and creator of his own history. They claim 
that this freedom cannot be reconciled with the affirmation of a Lord who is author and purpose of all things. So again, that, that falling into oneself, that, that you know, man is so impressed with himself and wants to stretch himself so much that, yeah, God is now just a limit. Yeah, and, and think about how common that how many times it's almost like a societal ethos, this like I am the maker of my own destiny kind yeah. of thing. And I think a degree of that is actually healthy. But if you get to the point where, like, I become my own God in a way, and the sky is the limit on what I can do and what I can achieve, and, like, on a grand scale, without any acknowledgement of God or other people or whatever, that can be a problem. Yeah. And they say they say in there that this sense of power... Uh, modern technological progress produces and encourages this outlook. Mm-hmm. So it's like, of course, we we could we got to the moon. Yeah, have they gotten to the moon at this point? No, sixty nine. Yeah, okay. So they're about to get to the moon. Well, they were working on it. Yeah, because Kennedy said by the end of the decade. So right. they were working on it when this came out. Yeah. So I I mean I think that's a really I I still think this is a problem today. I think it's a really sort of prophetic look at. And it's not demeaning technological progress. It's not saying that's bad. It's saying that without an acknowledgement of God, it, it it is bad. Is that fair to say? Yeah. This is a. I think the next thing I highlighted is on communism, or at least communism can be attached to this because it doesn't name it. This is again. This is the end of paragraph twenty. Not to be overlooked among the forms of modern atheism is that which anticipates the liberation of man, especially through his economic and social emancipation. This form argues that by its nature, religion thwarts this liberation by arousing man's hope for a deceptive future life, thereby diverting him from the construction of the earthly city. Consequently, when the proponents of this doctrine gain governmental power, they vigorously fight against religion and promote atheism by using, especially in the education of youth, those means of pressure which public power has at its disposal. Yeah. That's communism. Yeah. That's Marxism. Religion is the opioid of the people. That's exactly what this paragraph is talking about. And I 100% agree with it. Because if you look at, you know, the Soviet Union, churches were destroyed. Look at China. Churches are destroyed, suppressed, uh, because it's it's the, the power of the worker, the power of the, it's, yeah. Yeah. And if, if you look at, you know, this when this came out, this was the beginning of the peak of the Cold War. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I like how they, they, pointed out the the big flaw in that let's say you could establish that stuff perfectly the flaw in it is it's placing all the emphasis on our earthly life Mm -hmm. and it's and it's missing that what our faith is really about it's about the divine we have a role on earthly life to make it better but that is not the end all be all it's i mean it's as simple as the king kingdom of god is not of this world yeah. Um. And so, uh, 
a systematic approach to focus everything on this world is uh, missing the mark in many ways. 100%. I got some stuff here. All right. Hit me with it. Paragraph 21, the attitude of the church towards atheism. Mm. It, Go on. It tries, nevertheless, to seek out the secret motives which lead, lead the aesthetic mind to deny God. Well, knowing how important the problem raised by atheism and urged by its love for everyone, it considers that these motives deserve an earnest and more thorough scrutiny. I just thought this is kind of funny because they're basically saying all of everything we've said, this is why we are commenting on atheism right. to begin with. That's why yeah. they say it. Um, and by the way, this all leads to a really in my opinion, one of the most important points the church makes. All this stuff about atheism, we're still under the umbrella of the dignity of the human person. Right. So it's very interesting that they're talking about conscience and free will and social nature, and then mm -hmm. they talk about atheism. But they're doing that for a reason. Right. And, and they're kind of building up to that, which I'll reveal shortly. <laughs> <laughs> the suspense is growing. Yeah. The anticipation, rather. And, and it says the church holds that to acknowledge God is in no way to diminish human dignity since, since such dignity is grounded and brought to perfection in God. Mm. It further teaches that hope in a life to come does not take away from the importance of the duties on this life on earth, but rather adds to it by giving new motives, motives for fulfilling those duties. So again, it, you would not be a good churchgoer yeah. if you just lived alone and refused to participate in society. Exactly. You still have a role to do. You still have a job to do on earth. And religion is not so you can escape from that, but rather it's to give you a, mo a real motive for why you're doing that. So my question is, uh, well, I have a question, and you've read the Benedict Option. I have not, correct? Yeah. Would the Benedict Option be counter to what this document is saying? Um, because if now you've read it, I have not. Does the, the Benedict Option compared to Strangers in a Strange Land by uh, Archbishop Chaput, which I think Archbishop Chaput's take, Strangers in a Strange Land, is a book of uh, which is in line with Gaudium et Spes, where Christians should be a part of society, should still be very much intertwined with with what's happening in in the secular world. And if my understanding is correct, the Benedict Option is the opposite of that. Is that an accurate take? Not having read the book myself, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend it a little bit here because the Benedict Option is it's really a strategy for how the church can remain itself okay. in a world that has abandoned God. In in my opinion, I feel that the Benedict Option might be. 50 to 100 years a little bit ahead of its time if things continue to, uh, I've to heard regress that, yeah, the way makes, it okay. is because it it's not that they're saying like we shouldn't be involved in society it's saying that we have no choice uh, and if we want a way forward this is we're gonna have to sort of retreat focus on kids raising your kids the right way in the church and then sort of reestablishing themselves that way Interesting. It's sort of like 
the, and this is my interpretation of that. It's sort of like an empire that's expanded really, really far, and now the whole thing's about to come crumbling down. And so you would retreat back to reef to like have a garrison. Ah, uh, okay. And sort of that. If I'm giving the Benedict option, um, that's me sort of giving it as much. That's me giving it credit. Like that's to me what the strategy was about. Okay. Because that's what it is. It's not really a theology as it is a strategy for the church going forward. True. Um, I'll have to read this book. And then on the other hand, too, if you think, I always think about this because I really like like the early ascetic movement that led into the monastic movement. Mm -hmm. These guys viewed themselves not as, in some ways, abandoning the world. They said that. I'm going to die to this world. Yeah. But they were doing that so you would look upon them as like inspiration true so in their minds being a monk out on the mountaintop away from society is in a way still helping because you're showing everybody you're showing everybody dedication and you're supposed to be inspiring to them they viewed themselves as martyrs basically same way a Mm. martyr is literally dying yeah and inspiring others to come into the faith that's what the idea of like the monastic movement was designed for yeah that makes sense whether that is succeeded or not is up for debate but that was the intention behind it right interesting question though and by the way some critics of critics of the benedict option would say exactly what you just said you know awesome awesome i'll have to read that book though yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, the next the next thing I want to... Actually, I'm going to kind of wrap up. They, they kind of wrap up their idea on atheism. But the whole reason that they're pointing this out, why they're connecting atheism to human dignity, is the church is essentially saying that that atheism and that I for they use this word is missing that vital link between God and humans. Correct. And so if you don't have that link, I'm going to be a little controversial here. Okay. If you don't believe in Imago Dei, if you don't believe that all humans are created equal or, or all humans are created by God, then what reason is there to believe in equality? That's a good question. Because what the church is claiming here is that that is why we believe in equality. The only reason we are all equal is because God made us equal. And so right. without that, and and think of all the human lives that were lost in the 20th century. It's one of the deadliest centuries in human history. It, it is the deadliest by far. And and part of the problem that the, that the church is pointing out is that is that um you know it's no wonder because we're we're living in a world that's actively pushing god out of the window and Correct. okay if you have an entire nation that doesn't believe that god created humans in his image and likeness well why would they care about killing thousands or millions of people who are getting in the way of their goals Correct if you look at the two biggest uh, perpetrators of the atrocities of the 20th century. You got the Nazis that believed in a very perverted, and that's putting it in best of terms, a, a idea of Christianity. 
And then you had the Soviets who were atheists and combined they killed like 30 million people. Well, uh, there's a moral theologian, uh, Dr. Kim, told me, pointed this out to me, and it's in one of his books. Um, he write, writes a book on ethics that come from this. Mm-hmm. And he says that more people in the 20th century died at the hands of atheistic regimes Correct. than in all other centuries combined. Yes. And he's saying that as a response to people who who would say something like, well, what about the Crusades or what about the Inquisition? And it's like, as bad as those things were, it's pretty minute in scale as to what happened in the 20th yeah. century. And it was at the hands of governments that explicitly tried to move their people away from God. Right. There's also a difference between losing people in war and systematically exterminating them. Exactly. Like, war, yeah, you're going to have death. That is a fruit of war, 100%. There's a difference between two factions coming to battle and people dying as a result than setting up gulags and concentration camps and sending people there by the millions to die. That's a whole nother level of evil. And right. so, to, and there is no uh, legitimate, catholic society that ever did that and the church has never ever promoted that ever right so yeah a lot of atheists say well look at all the atrocities christians did that was never promulgated by a pope it was never there was never a systematic setup to to kill heathens and it in all those things that we're referring to, if it came under the guise of Christianity, it was really at the hands of a king or a governor Correct. or something that was that was basically claiming authority over the church. Correct. Um, but so, yeah, and, and the church is basically saying, well, no wonder all of this is happening. If you don't recognize that what they call that vital link between God and humanity, that he created us and he created us all in his image and likeness. Like, no wonder all this is happening. Thomas Merton, who's a Trappist monk, he he wrote about this, and he said, uh, I'm gesturing to my bookshelf like I have it open and people can see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, he said uh, and he was writing around this time, a little bit before this was when he was really famous. He's saying that, like, all these peace councils and committees is just a joke. If right. you take God out of the equation... All of this war is just going to keep on happening, Correct. and there's nothing that's ever going to stop it because we're we're foolish right now. That's basically his opinion of the entire 20th century. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a correct. And in the 21st century, I would argue, if you look at uh, what we're living in now, this cancel culture, this wokeism, this all this, when you take God out. You have this, well, now I can make up my own identity and to hell with you if you don't acknowledge it. You are now anathema and deserve to be purged from regular society. Without the hope for redemption. Exactly. Yeah. Or forgiveness. That's the big one. There is such a lack of forgiveness in today's world. Right. I mean, people are drumming up stuff from what people said 10, 20 years ago. When they weren't even adults, and now they get canceled because of it. It's absolutely ridiculous. 
Yeah, it's very contrary to the morality set forth by the go- by the Gospels. I mean, think about St. Paul himself. If there was ever a man that should have been canceled by the Catholic <laughs> Church, by yeah. the church, it probably should have been St. Paul <laughs> right. before, when he was a Pharisee. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, his story of redemption is like, it, that's like the essence of Christianity, that no matter how far you can fall, if you want to return to God, you'll always be able to. Correct. Think about the guy on the cross mm-hmm. who was a criminal his whole life, and then at the last second repents in front of God. So, yeah, that's the beauty of Christianity is the the ability to be reconciled, the ability to to be healed, and to do great things. I mean, look at Saint Paul. Uh, so I think that kind of wraps up what they were saying on, uh, with atheism. Good point. Um, and I am ready to go to chapter two, the human, uh, community. Yes, that's a great place to go. All right. So they said, they say, this is the name of their, uh, this is the name of their paragraph here. Chapter two, the human community, communitarian nature of the human vocation, God's design. God, who has a parent's care for all of us, desired that all men and women should form one family and deal with each other as brothers and sisters. All, in fact, are destined to the very same end, namely God himself, since they have been created in the likeness of God. Love of God and of one's neighbor, then, is the first and greatest commandment. Scripture teaches us that love of God cannot be separated from love of one's neighbor. I literally highlighted the same thing. Oh, nice. We were, like, on the same page. Yeah. I realized, too, that we are reading two different translations. We are, because mine is sexist and yours is not. (laughs) Oh, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is from the Vatican website. Okay. Those misogynistic animals. And yours is probably from some other publication. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So again, a, it's a not, completely revised translation in in, in inclusive language. I never noticed says that on I the cover. Never noticed that. <laughs> so yes. So the version on the Vatican website is apparently sexist and misogynist. So disclaimer: when I'm reading and I use male pronouns, it is. For both sexes. They still do that as well in here, though. But yeah. anyways, that's anyways, But yeah. <laughs> I think it is important. To, uh, that's why I highlighted it. Like, the love of God cannot be separated from love of neighbor. Because, I think this is my interpretation, because of the fact that a human is made in the image and likeness of God. So if you are not loving a human... You are therefore, by extension, not loving God. Would you agree with that? Yeah, of course. Awesome. Yes. Definitely, yep, I highlighted that. So, now they're getting into some stuff. Yeah. 25 is titled, Person in Society Interdependence. They say the fact that humans are social by nature indicates that the betterment of the person and the improvement of society depends on one another. Skipping through socialization as it is, is as it is called, is not without its dangers, but it brings with it many advantages for the strengthening and betterment of human qualities and protection of human rights. I want to so they're what they're doing right there 
is they're talking about I don't I don't know if they're talking about socialism per se. They're talking about the trend of socialization. Mm. So they talk and they mentioned both public and private associations and government organizations and things like that. Yeah. That there's dangers in this, but there's also tremendous benefit to this type of thing. Correct. Thoughts on that? No, I think I think you you sum it up well with the they're not talking about socialism. They're just talking about socialization. And, and, go ahead. And I mean it's one of the critiques of a document like this is they use sort of these buzz terms that are in modern political discourse. Right. So they there's and and by the way, the church owned these first. This is comes from social teaching which has been uh, part of the church for a while when they're, when they're talking about this phrase, the common good. Mm-hmm. And they say, because of the increasingly close interdependence, which is gradually extended to the entire world, we are today witnessing an extension of the role of the common good, which is the sum total of social conditions, which allow people either as groups or as individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. So, they go on and they say this direction towards the common good is necessary part of human society. Right. Everybody that lives in a society ought to have access to the things that they need to live a more fully human life. These are the terms they use. Correct. Which includes like security, the right to set up a family, the right to education, work, the right to their good name, to respect, to proper knowledge, the right according to the dictates of conscience, safeguards their privacy. The common, so they're they're doing something which I think is kind of subtle that we miss out in modern in our modern political landscape. We are there is a common good for everyone, but that common good allows needs to allow individuals to express their individuality. To have a family if they want to have a family. To have the type of job that they want, that they are able to fulfill and be happy with. Um, So they're really just commenting on sort of like a utopian idea. Yeah. On what the role of work and government in society is and all that. They get, the church gets attacked a lot for this for using like communist language here. Right, I think the uh, this, we will probably there will be parts where we disagree because there is a paragraph on unions that I highlighted that I'm currently looking for. I think it's further on down in the document, but the you know the the issue with socialism or communism that the church would disagree with is that it takes away from the private freedoms of a person. Right. So it doesn't necessarily disagree with the fruits of it, you know, the free health care, the, uh, the labor unions, the things like that. The church doesn't necessarily disagree with them on, it, on their face or on their faces, but it disagrees with the ripping away of personal freedom, which violates free will, violates human dignity, and so that's why there are a lot of critics that, you know, like, well, the church is promoting communism. Well, no, it isn't. It just doesn't disagree with some of the fruits. 
and the church says this, and I'll I'll get to it when it's further on down down in the document. But the church isn't part of a particular economic political system. Yeah. It's apolitical. It, it's yeah. Keep going. They're very clear about that because they're gonna they're gonna believe in something that's sort of conflicting to all the major ideologies. Yeah. Um. So there you have it. But that's that's what they say about the common good. Everybody ought to be working towards it. What does it mean to establish the common good? It means I have the ability to, I have access to the things I need to live a, a human life. Mm-hmm. And the, the church makes this very clear. I'm in paragraph 27. Were we going to bring up anything else before 27? No, go for it. So 27, at the end of 27, says, Furthermore, whatever is opposed to life itself, such as any type of murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, or willful self-destruction, whatever violates the integrity of the human person, such as mutilation, torments inflicted on body or mind, attempts to coerce the will itself, whatever insults human dignity, such as subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, prostitution, the selling of women and children, as well as disgraceful working conditions, where men are treated as mere tools for profit rather than as free and responsible persons. All these things and others of their like are in infamies indeed. They poison human society, but they do more harm to those who practice them than those who suffer from the injury. Moreover, they are a are supreme dishonor to the creator. So right there, you see some some buzzwords for each side of the political aisle, if you will. You know, right. murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia. A lot of those things are very, you know, to use the American context, you know, very Republican issues. And then on the other side of the aisle, you have, you know, impris- uh, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, subhuman living conditions, uh, you know, uh, worker rights and things uh, being very Democratic Party uh, platform issues. So the church says here, I mean, anything that is opposed to life itself is an issue. And this furthermore proves that the church is apolitical. It just happens that sometimes... Uh, whatever papacy is currently going on, sometimes it focuses on issues that happen to be promoted by one party over the other. I think that's one of the main criticisms of Francis is that right now his his main issue is the uh, you know disgraceful working conditions, men treated as mere tools for profit, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, you know the, all those immigration issues. Like that's where Francis is happening to focus his papacy, and so a lot of people are like, "Well, Francis is a communist, right?" He's <laughs> like, "No, he has he hasn't deviated from church teaching on life. His his charism, if you will, his papal charism, just happens to highlight these particular issues." Yeah, whereas someone like John Paul II was very much infamous for his sort of emphasis on the other side of the spectrum correct but mostly in stopping you know and pointing out the failures of communist regimes correct so um, focusing on personal freedoms and science. both of those popes are going to be in line with this document yep they're both post it they're both living in that spirit of it 
Um, so it's just careful how you use that word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you under you understand what right. I mean? Like they they would both be. I would argue they're both they're both in line with a document like this. Right. And, um, so yeah. And then at, after that, at the beginning of 28, it says respect and love ought to be extended also to those who this is important for, especially today's age. Respect and love ought to be extended also to those who think or act differently than we do in social, political, and even religious matters. In fact, the more deeply we come to understand their ways of thinking through such courtesy and love, the more easily we'll be able to enter into dialogue with them. How relevant is that to today's uh, societal disposition? Yeah, that's very, very in- insightful there because it's like that because my frustration with sort of the way things are is the unwillingness to dialogue yeah the unwillingness to see the 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 point of view even if you disagree with it but you have to to enter into a dialogue is to hopefully bring both of you closer to the truth and if you can't enter into a dialogue with someone you can't correct someone for being wrong because why would they listen to you if you're calling them a terrible person or something like that and so dialogue is a very key thing that's missing here. And dialogue isn't isn't just argument. Like argument for like there's a difference between arguing to win a point. I'm going to say things in order to win. A dialogue is an honest clash of ideas mm-hmm. to get to the truth. Right. That's an important distinction too. And so they say here we need for people that disagree with us on our way of thinking, on our religion, we should enter into a dialogue with them. Not yeah. we should subjugate them. Right. We should ignore these people or cast them away. We should dialogue with them. Which is another big thing for the church to say, because a common uh, criticism of the church is that it was too involved in politics, and so the, the monarchs of Europe in particular, being supported or crowned by the pope, have you know, basically imposed Christian thought on the people and burned people at the stake for for disagreeing. 29, they talk about social justice. And I'm going to read my... Trans- I'm a little interested in the way your tra- how different your translation is. 29, all men and women are endowed with a rational soul and are created in God's image. They have the same natural origin, being redeemed by Christ. They enjoy the same divine calling and and destiny. Sort of, again, that initial call to human dignity. Yeah. Sound good to to yours? Yeah, it's to say, since all men possess a rational soul and are created in God's likeness, since they have the same... So this translation is just adding men and women. Essentially, (laughs) yes. So uh, they say, undoubtedly... Not all people are alike as regards physically physical cap- capacity and intellectual moral powers, but any kind of social or cultural discrimination in basic personal rights on the ground of sex, race, color, special conditions, language, religion must be curbed and eradicated as incompatible with God's design. It is deeply to be deplored that these basic personal rights are not yet being respected everywhere, as in the case with women who are denied the chance freely to choose a husband or a state of life or to have access to the same educational and cultural benefits as are available to men. Boom. Does yours say that? 
<laughs> no, it says women must uh, be in the kitchen. No, that's that's yeah. The the article here, uh, the article, the the Vatican's translation of this again that I pulled from the Vatican website is is pretty much the same. Okay, exactly. So I'm going to stop asking that question. <laughs> I was just I figured if yeah. we were going to find a clash, it would be right there. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, but I, again, it it speaks to that. The, you know, a lot of times Christian or Christianity is critiqued as in as as uh, horrible to women, as you know, misogynistic and limiting for women. When that's precisely not true, and the Church makes that case here, you know, that women should be able to choose who their husband is, should be able to be afforded the same educational benefits that men have. And that's a very progressive, to use that term, if you will, uh, statement from the church, which is considered to be quite opposite of progressive to people of of a certain political leaning. Yeah. They say here, it is for public and private organizations to be at the service of the dignity and destiny of humanity. Let them spare no effort to banish every vestige of social and political slavery and to safeguard basic human rights under every political system. And even if it takes a considerable time to arrive at the desired goal, these organizations should gradually align themselves with spiritual realities, which are the most sublime of all. I mean, there's, there's your, there's a manifesto against communism, right? Because under communism, you're a slave to the state. You are a tool of the state. And the church here is upholding that. No, we need to uphold everyone's free individual rights. And that was also 29, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And in, in 30, I highlighted this. It says, unless you had any more points on 29. No. I, I think I, that goes right into I have 30. Some in 30, yeah. Yeah. So profound and rapid changes make it more necessary that no one ignoring the trend of events or drugged by laziness, I love my version says <laughs> drugged by laziness content himself with a merely individualistic morality. It grows increasingly true that the obligations of justice and love are fulfilled only if each person contributing to the common good according to his own abilities and the needs of others also promotes and assists the public and private institutions dedicated to bettering the conditions of human life. Yet there are those who, while possessing grand and rather noble sentiments, nevertheless, in reality, live always as if they cared nothing for the needs of society. And I think this is a, another very relevant, relevant, yeah, relevant's a word, another very relevant statement from the 60s that is so relevant today, this because today it's like your truth, my truth, you know, yada, yada. Here is, it's basically that we have to be careful of this. Yeah. This individual morality. Yeah, the title of that, of that paragraph is the need to transcend an individualistic morality. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Church That's good. very much against uh, relativism. And right. they're going to, throughout this document, throughout this all of church teaching, basically, there are going to be references to the problem of that idea. Yeah. And um, it kind of goes back to conscience. We all have a conscience subscribed by God that, you know, 
gives us the ability to deceive right from wrong. So you can't have a purely individualistic morality as if your conscience is completely different than somebody else's. Correct. And this church cements that by saying, let everyone consider it his sacred obligation to esteem and observe social necessities as belonging to the primary duties of modern man. Sacred obligation to esteem and observe social necessities. That's quite opposite of being individualistic. Yeah. I love how it just plainly says that. It is our sacred obligation to look at society, identify its needs, and and esteem them. Not just be like, okay, yeah, you handle yourself, I'll handle myself, and that's it. No, it's like, okay, we need to create a society that upholds everyone. Um, so I'm going to go to chapter three. Yep. Human's activity in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about sort of the problem that they see going on, which is sort of rehashing kind of what we opened with. Um, but I did want to point this out. Uh, the church says far from thi- what paragraph are you? I'm on paragraph 34 at the bottom. Cool. Far from thinking that what human enterprise and ability have achieved is opposed to God's power as if the rational creature is a rival to the mm. creator. Christians are convinced that the achievements of the human race are a sign of God's greatness and the fulfillment of his mysterious design. So they're saying here that all these advances in technology and uh, human achievement and society, this is not um, happening uh, and making God angry. On the contrary, this is a sign of God's will. Mm -hmm. And um, everything that's good comes from god and so that includes the good that's coming from society all right now they there's one line i wanted to point out in 35 they're talking about the human activity and they get into this question about what happens to the human worker with these advances in technology Mm. but they say this is a really powerful line People are of greater value for what they are than for what they have. Boom. Just leave it at that. Yeah. It's a really powerful statement. It is. Yeah. People are of greater value for what they are. The fact that you are human Mm -hmm. is more important than what you have or what you can achieve or what you can build or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Enough said. (laughs) They also say... So on, on uh, 36, I, I'm skipping over some of this stuff. That's if you want to hit something, just let me know. But no, I, don't, I don't have anything again until chapter four. Okay. This is all you. So they say, um, and by the way, if it feels like we're skipping around and the church is kind of all over the place, we are skipping everything. They make a connection into everything else. Yeah. And we're kind of skipping over those connections because it's sort of redundant and sort of self-explanatory to a four-hour podcast yeah Yeah. (laughs) so they say they're talking about the advances in technology and they say consequently methodical research in all branches of knowledge provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws can never conflict with the faith Mm -hmm. because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same god boom 
that's another that's another really short powerful statement it's that progress in science is not in conflict with god so long as it doesn't you know declare itself over morality as long as it's ethical right because the things of this world and the things of god are it comes from the same place exactly so it's a nice little it's, it, it because a, a, another common critique of christianity is that it's opposed to science and reason when that argument sure could be made against say you know evangelical protestantism and and, and some other protestant uh denominations but when it comes to the the catholic church it has it it promotes the sciences the university system is a product of the catholic church the hospital system product of the catholic church because of the uh, of esteeming the needs of society that is a product of the faithful coming together and living out the gospel so yeah science is not opposed to faith it is only opposed to the faith if it is immoral and unethical that's you know for example Abortion, thing, things like that, euthanasia, uh, or or you could even say, you know, uh, sex reassignment surgery, um, depending on what's being sought after. That's the only time where science and faith conflict. Uh, but the but possessing scientific knowledge is not immoral. Yeah, nor is the progress of it. Correct. If anything, it, it, it if anything it gives us more information to God, you know, right? Um, so I mean, yeah. I'm I'm a huge space nerd. So anytime I see like a huge space discovery or like anything like that, I, I just marvel at God's ability. Yeah, exactly. it's like my goodness, how awesome is this? I really hope that James Webb Telescope launch goes well at the end of the year because that's going to look into the origins of the universe because it's it's an infrared uh, telescope, so it looks at infrared, which is these are these are light waves that are older because they're they're more distant. So these are anyway science aside, but like yeah, to me that's gonna be like yes, let's look at the beginnings of the universe. Like that's awesome to me. So yeah, faith and science. Absolutely, can be partners. They should be partners. That's how the church views them, anyway. Yeah, and here's a sentence that kind of uh, sums up all of this emphasis on human dignity, because um, they're not talking about it in terms of relationship or uh, atheism anymore. They're talking about it, and they're commenting throughout this chapter on the progress of human society and things like that. But they say. In any case, believers, no matter what their religion, have always recognized the voice and the revelation of God in the language of creatures. Besides, once God is forgotten, the creature itself is left in the darkness. Mm. I, I just like that. I just like that quote, saying that um, as long as God comes with us in this progress and in this development, it's okay. Right. But if we abandon God, then we're going to be abandoned ourselves I mean, look at, by our own doing look around yeah yeah so and um i'm good for uh i'm good for till chapter four nice chapter four the role of the church in the modern world 
So now we're now the church is going to discuss. Okay, where do we all fit in? We've we've identified some truths, or or reemphasized some truths. Okay, where does the church fit in all this? And I don't know if you highlighted anything. I I went down. This is the uh, uh, paragraph forty, and I highlighted the bottom part where it says that the Catholic Church gladly holds in high esteem the things which other Christian churches and ecclesial communities have done or are doing cooperatively by way of achieving the same goal. At the same time, she's convinced that she can be abundantly and variously helped by the world in the manner of preparing the ground for the gospel. It's a big statement. For the church to make, because if you weren't Catholic, you're anathema, you're heathen. And here the church is saying, actually, there are things that other Christian churches are doing that the Catholic church holds in high esteem as long as it's part of the same goal. Yeah. And it kind of unpacking a lot there because at this same council they wrote a document called nostra Aetate, which mm-hmm. is their opinion on reli- other religions yep um and it's the first time the church actually addresses the other major religions yeah. in its history yes which is incredible <laughs> and, yes, it, it, and is. it it says similar things like it, it says that, look, there are things these other religions do well, but we still affirm that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the fullness of religious life is with God. This is, now I'm quoting Nostra Aetate, mm-hmm. same council, different document. Yeah. But they, they're pointing out sort of these other religions in that they are actually bringing, they have value to give as well. And sometimes that value aligns with ours. Yep. Um, And so... Th- the church here is sort of in with this statement, that document, Nostra Aetate, they don't bring up other Christian religions. They are only talking about Judaism, right. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. But the reason they don't is because they address it here. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, much more uh, sort of a more embrace that's uh, was sort of just non-existent in the church prior to this. Yeah. Which is kind of weird to think about, but. And then I highlighted in paragraph 42 something that I mentioned earlier. Moreover, since in virtue of her mission and nature, she is bound to no particular form of human culture, nor to any political, economic, or social system, the church by her very universality can be a very close bond between diverse human communities and nations, provided these trust her and truly acknowledge her right to true freedom in fulfilling her mission. So there it is. The church isn't socialist. The church isn't capitalist. The church is not Republican, not Democrat. It is the church. That's it, period. End of statement. I mean, it's... And now more than ever, I think it's important for the church to emphasize this. And, and again, like I said earlier, Francis gets a lot of uh, criticism for what he says when it comes to, like, economic things. It's like, oh, he's a socialist. The church is not any particular economic 
system. It says it right here in Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council. So when, when Pope Francis is talking about how we should uphold workers' rights and how we should be careful with rampant capitalism, he's well within his right to do so because the church isn't capitalist. Right. It, it, it's going to critique any government that doesn't fulfill kind of what we were talking about earlier, the things that provide you a truly human life. Exactly. And whatever society produces that is going to get support from the church, and whatever society is lacking in that is going to draw critique from the church. Mm-hmm. And you can get you can get all sorts of variety of political systems that fulfill and don't fulfill different aspects of what... But it's all missing the point if it doesn't get all of it. And all political systems are always going to miss the point because these are human institutions. Yep. Um, and primarily, you know, we, we're talking about the kingdom of God. It's not going to fit perfectly with any human society. That's precisely why the church has to maintain it's a political nature exactly. because as soon as it becomes political, and I think this is truly why uh, this is, I think the, the, you know, the dissolution of the papal States was part of divine providence because it made the church political when the church had, you know, lands and the Pope was literally the King of more than just Vatican city. It, it drew the church into that geopolitical mess. And that's why I think it's totally fitting that the church is now the smallest country on the planet <laughs> because yeah. the ki- it, the kingdom is not of this world. And, the, and so the church should also not be tied to, or uh, it should be in the world, but not intertwined with its politics. Um, I wanted to if it's okay with you i'd like to go to uh the next section um part two can i uh, uh, paragraph 43 to highlight some things if i may and i think these are very important things because this council is known for discussing the importance of the laity Oh, yeah. I skipped over all that, didn't I? Yes, you did. (laughs) So in (laughs) paragraph... I I just skipped the most notorious part of the document. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) This is why this is a two-man podcast. Um, So in paragraph 43, and because I was in a rush, I highlighted like multiple parts of this one thing. So I'm going to try not to read all of it. But it says here, secular duties and activities belong properly although not exclusively, to laymen. Therefore, acting as citizens in the world, whether individually or socially, they will keep the laws proper to each discipline and labor to equip themselves with a genuine expertise in their various fields. They will gladly work with men seeking the same goals, acknowledging the demands of faith and endowed with its force. They will unhesitatingly devise new enterprises where they are appropriate and put them into action. Laymen should also know that it is generally the function of their well-formed Christian conscience to see that the divine law is inscribed in the life of the earthly city. From priests, they may look for spiritual light and nourishment. 
that let the layman not imagine that his pastors are always such experts, that every problem which arises, however complicated, they can readily give him a concrete solution, or even that such is their mission. Rather, enlightened by Christian wisdom and giving close attention to the teaching authority of the church, let the layman take on his own distinctive role, period. Some of the practical fallout of that, what you just read right there, and people don't realize this, the only reason you can have non-priests or non-ordained teach in a Catholic school is because of that statement right there. Yep. And the other statements that sort of affirm that throughout this council. But like that affirmation of the laity to take a more to take more of a role in the church is a huge part of this council and it's a huge change in direction or change in emphasis that the church is taking here um but what did you can unpack it i i think the the it and it goes on to say here that Hence, it is necessary for people to remember that no one is allowed in the aforementioned situations to appropriate the church's authority for his opinion. They should always try to enlighten one another through honest discussion, preserving mutual charity and caring above all for the common good. So, and since, and I'll finish this paragraph here, it's a, or this, this part of the section, since they have an active role to play in the whole life of the church, laymen are not only bound to penetrate the world with a Christian spirit, but are also called to be witnesses to Christ in all things in the midst of human society. So this basically is saying is that the laity has their own distinctive role in, in the world of a Christian. That, that the priests don't have all the answers, and that's not their mission to have all the answers, and that the, the laity should penetrate society with Christian uh, thoughts, morals, the teachings of Christ to be witnesses to human society. And so th- this is a huge deal. Yeah, it's, it's saying that you could be a plumber and still be doing the work of the church. Boom. Yep. You know, it's saying that your faith should permeate whatever your profession is, Mm -hmm. even if it's not associated with the church whatsoever. And that's a really sort of uh, that's a way for people to take ownership of their faith. Yes, absolutely. And I look at also um, for married couples, a lot of people and this is still an issue today and it'll be an issue tomorrow and forever. But there is hope. I'm seeing hope. Uh, in in married couples really living out their sacrament in a holy and permeating way because normally people just look toward you know the priests and religious for holiness like yep yeah, okay the priest is holy the you know the religious sister is holy that's where i get my holiness but what this document is saying is that no n- not only are you know the priests and religious Uh, part of that for the laity play a distinct role in that and they are to witness to christ in all that they do so a married couple should uh give people as much holiness as a priest does because their role is different but still being witnesses to christ should 
offer people just as much hope, just as much enlightenment, just as much love as a priest does living out his role. And I'm starting to see Catholic culture embrace that. Uh, I think it's taken a long time, but I'm starting to see where, where the church is actively looking to promote couples that are beautifully living out their vocation. And, and I try to do this myself. Like I, you know, I have, I have you, I have my, my friend and he's there in Hawaii now. Like they're solid Catholic couples that I am inspired by. Even though I might be discerning priesthood, I'm still inspired by their holiness and their vocation. And that is the duty of every lay person. And this document, I think that's what it makes clear. It's like, it's not all on the priests. Yeah, because the, the Catholic culture at this time is like, you, you have a, the priests, you have the ordained, and uh, you go and you watch them do Mass. And then that's it. That's it. That's your a- obligation. That right. was That was sort of a cultural symptom it's not what the church was teaching but that was the effect of it basically and this is trying to get around that and say when you leave mass your faith is still you're still practicing your faith right it's not just it's not just what happens um when you receive communion from the priest it's it's not all about that moment right there and then it just stops until next week or whatever um so this is a really like powerful sort of uh call if you will to the rest of the church body and so i think to to i think it's it's there's this part one was packed with stuff but it's not even like the the awesome part of this document or the the meatiest most practical part of this document yeah yeah to like this is all still like sort of grand commenting on their the way they view the world the world or the reasons they view the world a certain yeah. way and then part two is i mean they comment on specific political things such as Correct. warfare such as marriage such as the political climate uh they even like they talk about the arms race and so yeah. there's a lot of different stuff there there's like this is all why we think the way we do and the next section is here's what we think about X Y Z going on right now. Correct. And so they're both important. Part two, if you just hear what the church says about all these different things, you're going to say, "Well, what about this?" or "What? Why not that?" or like, and the that's why part one's important. It's to understand right. where they're coming from, basically. And I think it's it's I think it's good to finish part or one of our conversation with the end of paragraph forty three, and it says. Although by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church will remain faith will remain the faithful spouse of her Lord and will never cease to be the sign of salvation on earth. Still, she is very well aware that among her members, both clerical and lay, some have been unfaithful to the Spirit of God during the course of many centuries. In the present age, too, it does not escape the church how great a distance lies between the message she offers and the human failings of those to whom the gospel is entrusted. Whatever be the judgment of history on these defects, we ought to be conscious of them and struggle against them energetically, lest they inflict harm on the spread of the gospel. Period. 
yeah, again, sort of taking ownership for the faults of the people that are right. associated with the church. Right. And drawing that distinction between what the church teaches and how the people, how people live by that teaching. Exactly. So this concludes part one. We'll be back at some point with part two where it gets really into the meat of things. Yes. So, yeah. Take care, everybody. Very good. Peace.